the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to be joined by Kate Shelnut, Senior News Editor for Christianity Today, to talk about the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And then a fascinating article by David French asks this question, would the truth of aliens destroy our faith? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. We wanted to start in two separate spots. First, a quick update on all that's going on at that tragedy in Miami. Like, it's, I can't take my eyes off at just watching oh, this. Devastating. Uh, I think everybody is expecting that while the death toll is 11 or 12 right now, it, it's still that number of people missing that is the big number. Uh, because yeah. we're praying that maybe one or two or a couple people are still alive. But with each passing hour, uh, it is likely uh, that those people who are unaccounted for will end up being fatalities here. And so, Aubrey, it's still overwhelming, but I, I think you made a good point of wanting to start the show going, hey, we're still praying and cheering on these efforts, but also still praying for these families who are going through this. Yeah, right now. so we're, we rescue workers. We are cheering them on for churches in the area. We're cheering them on, and our hearts and our prayers are definitely with the family and friends of loved ones who we know are ultimately at this point awaiting probably very devastating news. We actually have Kate Shelnut on later today, and she's going to talk a little bit about what churches in Miami are doing to help and support rescue workers. But it's a certainly a big story. And I, I feel like as Christians, we just need to mind, be mindful to keep praying, ask God to show up in only ways that he can. And you and I have talked about this before in the common good. We never want to grow numb. Right. to these horrific tragedies. And so I think just being mindful, remembering to pray, grieving with those who grieve is really necessary for Christians. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It could be so easy to just blow past these because you get numb in the age exactly. of Twitter and, right. and the news where you get everything right away. You just move on to the next thing. And and the people most affected can't move on yeah. here. And so uh, please be keeping these people in your prayers and your thoughts as we continue to pray that maybe somebody gets saved or whatever That's else right. That's right. may happen. I, I, I also wanted to talk about uh, the big, it's kind of, it's tangentially a sports story, but well, okay. uh, I've told you before that uh, when I'm not listening to AM 1160, I like to listen <laughs> to talk radio sports, sports talk radio. And there was one story dominating the news yesterday in the sports world in Chicago. And that is uh, the words of Scottie Pippen. So uh, Scottie Pippen, uh, maybe the second best athlete ever in Chicago, right. at least the second best basketball player. Right. But he played with Michael Jordan. And uh, Scottie Pippen seems to be going through an angsty time. Now, I do want to acknowledge that Scottie Pippen, 
uh, that he had the death of a child within the last couple months. Oh, that, I didn't that, know that, Brian. That's uh, terrible. A, a grown child. That doesn't make it any easier, oh. but just to give it. And so as I have heard people talking about what he's saying, people are saying, hey, don't forget what could be going on here. Uh, but he's also he's come out with a new whiskey and a new book. So he's on the promo tour right now. And what made the headlines on the Dan Patrick show yesterday is that Scotty Pippen. Uh, all right. I'll read a little more background. 1994 Eastern Conference semifinals or finals against the New York Knicks uh, game at the Chicago Stadium. Scottie Pippen is the star of that team as Michael Jordan had been retired at that point. Uh, last second shot. Scottie Pippen thinks he's going to take it. But Phil Jackson draws up the play for Tony Kukoc. And uh, Scottie Pippen refuses to go into the game. It's one of the singular moments of Scottie Pippen's career. Ironically, Tony Kukoc makes the shot. The Bulls win. Uh, but then, uh, yesterday, Scotty Pippen. So we're talking 27 years ago or so. Okay. Uh, Scotty Pippen said that Phil Jackson drew up the play for Tony Kukoc for racist reasons. And okay. that Phil Jackson is a racist and kind of played the race card. And a lot of people are like, whoa, where did this come from? Hmm. And so that's the firestorm. He said some stuff about Phil Jackson, who later coached Kobe Bryant, trying to tear down Kobe Bryant. So. Oh. Anyway, that, but the main headline was Phil Jackson called the play for to- Co- Tony Kukoc out of racist reasons. He wanted has, a white guy to make Phil the shot. Has Phil Jackson responded? He has not as okay. of, as of now, at okay. least that I haven't seen. But you got to remember, Phil Jackson spent his career drawing up plays for Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant to end games, right? Yeah, and yeah. so, uh, a lot, that is the headline. And Aubrey, I wanted to just take it this route and say this. Uh, when I first heard this, my first thought was the more that we claim stuff that was as racist, that clearly wasn't. Phil Jackson was just trying to win a game. I'm not saying Phil Jackson is or isn't racist in his personal life. I have no idea. But to call this play racist, I, I, I'd love to know your thoughts on this. This was a long way to get to this question. <laughs> the more that we call things racist or the more that we call everything sexist or everything religious persecution or everything whatever, everything Marxist or whatever else, the more that we call these things, the less tolerance people have for actual racism and actually having the conversation or actually going, yeah, you know, that's racist and that's not, or that's Mm -hmm. sexist and that's not. Mm -hmm. I feel like the more that we flippantly throw these words around, uh, the less meaning it becomes. And Aubrey, I would say that's really dangerous for us as a society. I, you know, I have mixed feelings about this because I, I don't know what Phil Jackson was like behind the scenes. And right. I wonder if Scottie Pippen had seen or experienced aggression, microaggression, racism from Phil Jackson in other ways. And so this was a moment that um, he felt like, oh, this is because of all the other things I've seen. And so that's mm-hmm. the hard part, right, is you don't actually know how Scottie Pippen was treated by Phil Jackson. You don't know how some of the other black players were treated by Phil Jackson. So I, I feel like that story in itself is hard for me to speak to. But I do hear what you're saying, that um, to label everything as something could potentially take the power away from actual instances of abuse or of sexism or racism or ageism. And so it is important to, I I think this is where I I have mixed feelings. You have to call out racism. You have to call out sexism, even if it was 25 years ago, even if you don't want to hear it, even if it's your beloved coach or your hero, it's got to be called out so that change is made period. Simultaneously, 
uh, are we being really mindful about the things we're calling out? And so, I, you know, I, 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 that's up in the air for me. I'm juggling yeah, I, that one a little bit. Yeah, I think it's a hard topic because without using names, you and I both shared stories with each other off air of people that we know who have said, I just, I can't have the conversations anymore because everything's this or everything's that. And you're like, no, but it's still an important conversation. Exactly. Like we still need to have it. But I also understand those people going, Mm. you know, when we use the, and it's not just racism. It's, I hear this from people talking about religious persecution, right? Yeah. If everything's persecution, then in the end, nothing nothing becomes persecution. Yeah. 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 If everything's racism or communism or whatever, then nothing actually is. Then nothing is. And it takes away from the really important conversations Mm. that we actually need to have. So I wanted to start there because that, you know, I'm a sports guy and I was listening to the sports radio yesterday. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I'll be curious if if tomorrow afternoon we're talking about a Phil Jackson response. That'll be interesting. Yeah, I wonder. Well, coming up next, and by the way, later in the show, you you did tell me, and we didn't get to it here, but you've got a Michael Jordan story. I have a great Michael Jordan story, Brian. You are going to be blown away by this. Everybody needs to stay with us today because I promise you we're going to get to it at some point today. Even if it's at the end of the show, you're going to tell your Michael Jordan story. Well, coming up next, uh, a friend of the show, Kate Shellnut, senior ed- uh, news editor for Christianity Today. Kate is going to join us. We're going to talk about the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Also, all of the reporting that Kate did around the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, and Kate also wrote a fascinating article recently uh, that says this, why church can't be the same after the pandemic. So we have a ton of stuff to talk about with Kate Shellnut next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined again by a real friend of the show, uh, senior news editor for Christianity Today. That is Kate Shelna. Kate, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me again. Oh, absolutely. Our pleasure. Aubrey and I were joking off air that we keep reading stuff of yours. We keep saying, hey, we need to have Kate on. We need Kate on. We need to talk to Kate. (laughs) (laughs) So it's great to have you here. And here's where I wanted to start today, Kate. Uh, Aubrey and I have been talking a lot about the Christianity Today podcast that just went out. I think uh, the second uh, episode dropped today about Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll. And uh, I I guess I want to start here. Uh, tell people just about it. What is your role in it? But the bigger question is, why do you think it's getting so much buzz right now? Why are people so interested in this podcast? So the podcast is called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and it's by our new media team. So I'm just, I was a voice on the first episode Mm -hmm. talking a little bit about how I um, reported on Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll, how we covered um, the church during its heyday. But I think the the reason people are tuning in is that the themes out of Mars Hill, the idea of both the excitement of being in a church that demands a lot, that's growing, that has this identity, and then also kind of the darker side of that, of being under domineering leaders and not recognizing it at the time of getting caught up in kind of everything for the sake of the mission um, and seeing the ways that abuse or trauma can sometimes take place in those contexts. I think actually there's a lot of churches that are similar to Mars Hill that have that. And there are a lot of churches that are a lot different in size and in tone, but the same kind of um, problems and tensions emerge. So I think it's become sadly um 
if not a universal experience, one that a lot of people mm. are concerned about or could relate to. So even though we're talking about this um, years after Mars Hill has existed, that, that the church is, is gone now, um, that there's this lingering um, awareness of maybe there are lessons to be learned here. Yeah. Maybe there are ways that we can think about ourselves and our leadership and our institutions in a way that can be healthier, um, for the sake of everybody and for the sake of the gospel. So I think that that's why people have been so eager to tune in. Yeah, that's so good. It, if you haven't listened to it, listeners, it is well worth a listen again. It's the rise and fall of Mars Hill in episode two dropped just this morning. Um, Kate, what is it like as a reporter? You mentioned that you covered Mars Hill for a while. What is it like as a reporter to cover some of these really hard church stories? And what gives you kind of the motivation to keep going? I think that it can feel like, I'll say it can feel like really overwhelming and like a big responsibility because there are so many stories like this that once you cover one, um, people start coming to you with their stories of mm. a particular leader or a particular church. And for us to know um, which story to do right away, which story to keep in our mind. And because the thing is, when we report on something that's painful or hurtful, um, that involves abuse by a leader, that involves, um, you know, heavy allegations that we don't do it lightly, right? We want to do right. the best job we can. And so in order to do that, it takes the investment of talking to a lot of people, talking in depth, you know, trying to get a lot of sides of the story. And it's, it's a real um, investment of time, but also kind of your emotions and energy that, um, that this is, you know, something that you've got to kind of dedicate part of your life to a chapter to. And so I think that, um, that, that I say would be the hardest thing is deciding when it's, it's time to kind of take that step and, and make it happen. What gives me hope is, um, I, I, my colleague Daniel Silliman was talking about on that first episode of the Mars Hill podcast that we're motivated by truth. And so mm. it's the idea that, um, we can't be scared of, um, of what will come out knowing that, um, that God is a God of truth. And, um, I, I have a Bible verse right over my desk here and it says, he is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. That's Psalm 112, Mm. seven. And so I have to remind myself that when bad news comes, I can't be shaken. I don't think God is shaken by it. Um, of course, grieved, but, um, I, I can go forward knowing that, um, he'll be glorified in it and that, um, that the truth is always going to be the right, the right wow. path. Wow. Mm-hmm. And Kate, I know it was only the first episode that most people have listened to, but that first episode was fabulous about what killed Mars Hill or who killed it. And part of the answer was all of us, right? Like just kind of mm-hmm. the way we go about stuff. What would you say to people? You've done all this reporting and all this stuff. What would you say to people out there are the red flags to watch for? Because a lot of times we get caught up in these big churches or even small churches with look at the fruit, look at all the good stuff that's going on. But what would you say are some red flags uh, that people need to kind of be on the watch for? I've been actually thinking about this for a possible story to report. And the funny thing is that I don't know, just a trend I've noticed is that a lot of times women are real sensitive to the red flags, Mm. even when it's maybe their husbands or men in the church who who are being abused or who are in situations that are unhealthy. A lot of times it's women saying, hey, should the pastor really be asking that of you? Should... Should we really be taking this approach? Um, just a pattern I've noticed. I don't know. Um, but some of it can be, um, I don't know, when when leaders um, 
a lot of times it involves leaders with platform. So a lot of times when it feels like a leader is taking moves for the sake of his platform, when people um, request to you loyalty to a leader or to a church over your loyalty to um, scripture and the word and to God, and it's to say, hey, you can't disagree with me on this or you can't talk critically. There should always be, I think, a space um, where leaders are open to criticism, whether even if that's just on a one-on-one level, like, hey, don't criticize me, you know, in a right. big group. Right. But um, but yeah, when leaders really put up a lot of defenses, when they're asked questions, when there's the desire to collaborate, when there's, um, you know, moves towards power sharing or delegation and leaders really resist that, I think sometimes those can be signs. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times I think it's a conscious thing. I think you kind of know... Um, a feeling of unsettlement. And, and sometimes it's hard to notice that when you're burnt out, like when you're yeah, so right, in the hustle right. of ministry work that it takes somebody outside or it takes you looking back years later. And I think some people who listen to this podcast might do the same where they say, oh, I didn't realize it at the time, but I, I think I was you know, in an environment that wasn't healthy, that was asking too much of me or asking mm. uh, the wrong things of me at that time. Oh, Wow. Um, Kate, I want to transition for a moment from Mars Hill to Miami Beach, which I know sounds random, but you uh, covered some of the churches that are there um, in Miami, in Surfside, near the condo collapse that are ministering to um, some of the rescue teams there. And I would love to hear more about that. Yeah. So as soon as we heard the news about that devastating condo collapse, I started looking at maps and seeing where are the churches. Sure enough, there's a church right across the street. Wow. They had immediately posted, um, it's a Spanish speaking church called Casa. They had immediately said, hey, since we're so close, we're like in the disaster zone, kind of at ground zero there and have opened up their doors for any authorities who need to use the building. They had to cancel services just because of the proximity, but um, have been distributing things. And of course, a number of churches are right trying to collect supplies for the volunteers and the rescue workers. Um, But what I thought was interesting is like a lot of people in the community can be giving away water and um, granola bars and uh, be, be supportive in that way. But I think Christians offer a unique place in that being there for prayer, mm-hmm. um, being there for spiritual support, because whether you're a family member or a community member or people who are these first responders, it's a really harrowing um, task right now to say, yeah. hey, there are um, 150 some people missing. It's been days and holding out hope for that little chance that you could still save someone, but also kind of facing the inevitability that the death toll is going to be very, very high yeah. and it's going to be very, very difficult to recover these bodies. So I thought it was interesting hearing from one pastor talk about um, how he's he's been thinking about um God, does God use disaster as punishment and to be able to talk to people about, um, you know, that this isn't, this isn't God coming down because people deserve it. But, you know, sometimes the consequences of sin are, are here, but it doesn't mean that, that God is not a good God, Mm. um, and doesn't want our good. Um, and so to try to 
grapple those things, which we know philosophically, but I think have to be so hard to believe when right. the reality in front of you seems so different. Um, so I was thinking about that, about about people who were there to offer spiritual care. Wow. Yeah. Again, Kate Chelnut is the senior news editor for Christianity Today. Kate, thanks so much for staying with us. Uh, and I want to thank you for all the reporting you did in the last week or two at the Southern Baptist Convention. Aubrey and I were just kind of eating it up from all mm-hmm. of you guys down there. I guess I just want to ask really big picture. As you walked away from the Southern Baptist Convention meetings, what were the major takeaways and did you leave there encouraged or discouraged? Oh, that's a tricky question. Yeah. So um, I will say as I was leaving, one of the organizers asked me, well, did you have fun? Oh. And I was like, I don't know if oh. I'd call it fun. fun. Right. <laughs> but um, I think that there were some, there were definitely some moments to be encouraged by. And I, and I think that there were also some places where the Southern Baptist Convention saw some of its tensions on display. And I think just because, you know, a vote went one way, um, let's say on on sexual abuse, on race and critical race theory they talked about, or the presidential vote, that those were kind of some of the big topics. But just because a vote went one way doesn't necessarily mean that those issues are settled. Um, and in some cases, like, let's say the presidential race, the, the candidate, um, kind of known for racial reconciliation, um, a pastor in Alabama, Ed Litton, he won. But the conservative Baptist network, their pastor had a great showing. So it shows that um, this group that is kind of an ultra conservative group within the SBC has a, a significant presence, is not a, a minority kind of to be written off. So I think that there are some question marks there for the future in mm. terms of what role this group will have in particular. Yeah. So I think even if you um, are an Ed Litton fan and say, okay, the good guy won, um, I think you you still may maybe have in the back of your mind the idea that um, there are other people who disagree and who are kind of still actively, um, you know, trying to discredit him or to uh, bring up other issues or promote their candidates. So it's not all settled. I guess. Yeah. Um, The other part of the SBC convention that Brian and I were watching really closely, and I know many of our listeners were as well, was the decision about um, an outside investigation of the sexual abuse that has been happening in the SBC. And I, I just wonder, I mean, there were pictures, of course, of some of the survivors just crying, feeling it seemed like a sense of relief and like, finally, you're taking us seriously. What was that like just to witness from your perspective? Yeah, I think that there was a lot, um, a lot that the survivors were glad to see these steps being taken after not being taken before. Of course, some of the things that um, accelerated and moved sexual abuse to the forefront this time had to do with leaked letters and even recordings. So essentially, the documentation is there um, around some of the um, gaslighting, some of the resistance that they've experienced mm-hmm. in the past. But really, this is a um, a long time coming, I think, for a lot of them. So I think even though they're holding out a little bit of hope, um, there's also a sense that oh, we've seen this not work out for us before. Yeah, right. right. Um, And so it's not a full celebration of like, it's all going to be fine now that I think that they're waiting to see who's going to be on this task force to oversee um, the investigation and to see what comes of it. I mean, even when the investigation is presented, right, 
what changes are made um, are made then. They definitely want to see more mechanisms for reviewing these churches who have um, abusive pastors at their pulpit or who have covered up abuse. Yeah. So far in two years, just three churches have been expelled from the SBC for abuse. And there are kind of known cases of others who have been reported and they're kind of wondering, you know, That's hands in the air, yeah. why, why haven't these churches um, yeah. been punished? So, so I think that there's still a little bit of let's wait and see what happens after it. Yeah. And Kate, last week, uh, you also wrote another article. We love how many articles you write. It gives us lots of stuff to talk about. <laughs> you wrote another article called Why Church Can't Be the Same After the Pandemic. Aubrey and I are both pastors. And, uh, you know, we've been wrestling with like, what does the church look like now that we're hopefully kind of seemingly coming out of this pandemic, this 16, 17 months? Uh, how do you see the church being different coming out of the pandemic? Yeah, so this is a story I started writing um, months ago. And so some of the questions I think are the same and some of my questions around it are changing. But part of it is, I think people have been changed by the pandemic. Um, whether you're someone who has lost a lot of people, whether you're a stay-at-home parent who went frantic, um, you know, trying to keep your kids entertained, whether you just spent so much time by yourself that you kind of forget the rhythms of church community, um, that the expectation of like, if we open the doors, everything will be the same again, um, is maybe a little bit naive that, yeah. that we have to say, hey, we we went through something and we went through it by ourselves um, without the support that we normally would want so much during that um, and just to know that people might need time, might need additional trauma care, um, and might need even a new way of talking about how to exist in community after community had been virtual or in some cases non-existent for so long. Hmm. There were Barna stats that at one point during the pandemic, 25% of people who used to go to church regularly um, were back in some sort of online community, which meant the majority of people weren't. There was a time when a ton of Christians who would have been churchgoers had the doors been open, weren't tuning in to the live stream or, or weren't um, going back. And so, so there's a, there's an absence that has been felt. And my goal with, with that story was to talk about, we at least need to be thinking about church differently and recognizing the ways um, that people were affected. I know, Kate, you know, uh, Brian said he and I are both pastors. And so we are, I mean, this is the stuff that we're constantly soaking up. Are you, uh, this is maybe a larger question, like bird's eye view question, thinking about what the church has been through over the past year, being firsthand witness to what's happening at the SBC. Now, again, part of this Mars Hill podcast, are you hopeful for the church at this point? I think I always have to be hopeful for the church. Um, one of our like principles and how we report at Christianity Today is that we believe the church is um, God's force for good in the world. Yeah. And I that doesn't change for me the, the more of these stories I report. Um, I think it, it makes me disappointed if 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 this this um this vehicle is not living up to its calling at times, but I still think it's the way that God intends um, for Christians to be together, for Christians to be working and advocating um, and helping and caring for people and sharing the gospel. I think all of that is constant. Mm -hmm. um, and I've never wondered if, if that's not what the church is supposed to do. Um, but I do think that 
there are times where we need a reorientation and a reminder of of how important that calling is. Um, and so so perhaps now is one of those times, especially around some of the abuse stuff that will be shaken up to say, hey, um, even when we're not helping and not doing the best, we're actually hurting mm. um, the work that could be going forward. But I, I still believe that, that that's what um, the church is for and will always be for. Um, Mm, that's good. That's good. Kate Shelnut again is the senior news editor for Christianity Today. Uh, you can learn more about Kate at kateshelnut.com. You can also read all of her articles at christianitytoday.com. I would encourage you to connect with her on Twitter at Kate Shelnut. That's at Kate Shelnut. Uh, you can get all of her articles right there. You can also get uh, her baseball leanings of the Atlanta Braves. I told Kate. <laughs> I told Kate off air, let's go Mets, right? Like we're, chop, we're, chop, chop. Go <laughs> that, is where, that is where we uh, go against each other. But Kate, again, so thankful for you coming on uh, so often. Uh, thanks for joining us today again. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. We have a really important topic to discuss. This is serious. Aliens. Aliens. So, I mean, we talk church, we talk pandemic, but really, it's all been building <laughs> to this to moment. Aliens. And why yep. are we talking about aliens? Well, because one of the uh, bloggers uh, slash podcasters that we really, really uh, value here. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you have claimed that I have a, a man crush on him, I believe. I, yes. That is uh, David French. Yep. At the French Press, he wrote an article just this week, just a couple of days ago. When the aliens come, will their arrival destroy our faith or will it teach us that creation is more magnificent than we imagined? Uh, but he's going to get at this question of if there was alien life form, if we were not alone, what would that do to your faith? Aubrey, he also, uh, we've got a fascinating YouTube clip uh, audio to play here. But before we do it, if you had to bet a large amount of your own money, <laughs> yeah. alien uh, life forms exist or don't exist, what would Aubrey Sampson bet? So I feel like people either believe in ghosts or aliens. They often don't believe in both. And I do not believe in aliens. I do believe in ghosts. Okay. Uh, I do not. No, I I would bet a lot of money that there are not aliens. So Meaning, I, I guess what I'm picturing as aliens, you know, creatures with like long legs and arms and the big eyes coming to like take over our planet. That's okay. so I'm saying no. What about you, Brian? I don't believe in aliens. I tend to believe that we're alone, but I know a lot of scientists think you and I are crazy. Right. Can we quickly go back to the ghost thing? For yeah, you there? definitely. You just blew past the I believe in ghosts. <laughs> Have you seen ghosts or no, is this no, just no. a belief? I, I should say I believe in the supernatural. So okay. I believe that there are forces at work in this world that scripture talks about that we can't see. So I, I've never seen a ghost. I don't want to see a ghost. I'm not interested. That terrifies me. But I do. I mean, there's some stories in my family of people seeing yes. like old cowboys in a rocking chair at somebody's house. And I believe those things. 
There are people – I will just leave it at there are people I know who are convinced that they have seen ghosts. Yes, but I, and, I, I don't ever want to see one in Jesus' name. I pray that all the time. Yes. <laughs> no let ghosts. Us, <laughs> let us point people to the King James Version of the Holy Ghost. We're going to stick there. That's the only so. ghost I want. That's right. <laughs> So listen to this audio. It's from a professor by the name of David Kipping. This is as almost 1.7 million views. We're just going to listen to the beginning about it where he talks about, well, maybe we are alone. Listen to what he had to say here. Within our observable universe, there are approximately 70 sextillion stars and of the order of 10 million billion billion planets around them. The unfathomable scale of this celestial ocean transcends human comprehension. Our terraqueous home barely registers as an imperceptible blip on a cosmic canvas. Since the dawn of astronomy, we've looked up at these oases of light and wondered if anyone else inhabits the dark with us whether we're on the precipice of joining some galactic club of civilizations, or whether, maybe, just maybe, this is it. We're alone. All right, Aubrey, so that's a really smart guy going, now. I think we're probably alone. I think alone, we're probably so. alone, yeah. All right, but David French asks the interesting question. Let's pretend that aliens yeah, are real. Let's have a little fun. Yeah. Let's let's go. Let's just kind of even if you and I don't believe it, let's pretend that it's true. Aliens are real. Does that then destroy your our faith or does that make does that embolden our faith that we have a god that's even the god over other life forms? Well, how would you answer that question? Right. I mean, from a purely pastoral perspective, I would say no, that would definitely embolden our faith. Like, wow, God's creation is bigger than we could have possibly imagined and more uh, creative than we could possibly imagine. Now, certainly, if those aliens come to like dominate and destroy that's maybe a, that might make you think a little differently. Like, is this God's creation or is this evil? What's happening here? Um, but I love that David French calls it first contact theology and says, undoubtedly, various Christian denominations would find that challenging. What do you think about first contact theology? Yeah, I've never really thought about it deeply. I think that if if uh, if our alien friends came and joined us one day, uh, and I would like to think it would be a peaceful thing, right? Like it would not be, you know, all the movies you watch where they're trying to destroy us. <laughs> right. Uh, I would like to think that my my first thought would be, my goodness, uh, uh, our God is so big and yeah. so powerful yeah. and so majestic that it goes beyond even what we ever, ever knew. Uh, so French writes this. I love this. He says, belief in a creator God implies something else, that there are exactly as many or as few advanced civilizations as God wills. Hmm. He directs the creation of new life. In fact, it may well be that the existence of God makes it more likely that there are alien civilizations. After all, Christians already know that there is, quote, something else out there. We believe that there are other uh, sentient beings. See, in that's the ghost. That's the ghost. <laughs> namely, he says, namely angels and demons. Okay. Uh, he, but ghosts work there that too counts, as well. That counts. <laughs> David French is clearly a ghost believer here as well. Uh, and so I believe, I, I like what French has to say there. Like to take it from a theological point, I don't think at all 
that if there's more out there than what we knew, because like you said, the Bible talks about there being more here than we know. Right, right. But that if there were more out there than we had ever known, I think that that screams to the majesty of God. It doesn't scream to the, oh, gosh, now there can't be a God because there's, you know, people out on planet X out there. Right, right. Uh, I think it re- I think it emboldens our theology. I think it does, right? Well, you know what I think is interesting? If you think about human history, I mean, even in like the Renaissance, anytime we don't know about something, the human tendency is to fill in that gap with sort of scary creatures. So if you look at maps from bat- way back in the day when lands were unexplored, uh, 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 wayfinders believed that there were dragons or there were like the Loch Ness Monster or there were these creatures in those gaps that have not to be explored. I think that is part of why we have alien movies, because we know space has not been completely explored and we fill in that gap with some kind of crazy monster. And so, I, you know, you could take that a couple ways. You could say, oh, that's just human tendency. That's our fear. We don't understand the unknown. We don't understand death. And so we just make up stories. Or that could be something innate in us that God has given us, pointing us to him. And I guess, you know, we'll see in the next few weeks if the aliens come, if that's true. But either way, I'm worshiping Jesus and, and I, it'll be, it'll be interesting. Why are these aliens coming in the next few weeks? What do you know that we don't know? <laughs> Aren't you listening? Aren't you watching the news? Everyone's talking about aliens. So I feel like they're, they're on their way. Oh, and, and I, I really appreciate that's really funny. If they don't come in the next few, if they're not here by Labor Day, well, then there's no aliens. They don't exist. Exactly. Yeah, it's a summer thing, right? Yes. Did you ever see? That's right. That's uh, right. He closes out this way. He says, uh, he points to Paul's words in Colossians 1, that God is the, Im- uh, he is the image, I'm sorry, of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And French ends this way. He's quoting uh, Deborah Harzma from BioLogos. Harzma says that it feels like Paul is running out of words in his effort to describe the comprehensiveness of God's creative authority. And French says, exactly so. If galaxies and angels and resurrection and heaven itself aren't too much for a believer to imagine, certainly we can comprehend and even welcome the possibility that we are not alone okay. in God's glorious okay. universe. I, I think I fall in line with French there. I of mean, course you do. You love David French, so you're going to fall in line with whatever he said. 100% right. Uh, but even like your ghosts, I think I don't think these things point us away from God. You even pointed out the important passage that says there's more to this world, even this world, than we could ever imagine. That's there's right. more going on. Hey, uh, it's a fascinating article. I love at it. The so French interesting. Uh, the biggest thing we're going to talk about today, aliens and are <laughs> they all around us? Okay. You never know what you're going to get here on The Common Good. And coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about Jim Baker and, and this thing about the COVID cure, a lawsuit that came out. And, and where are pastors supposed to go when helping with things like the coronavirus or other medical things? We're going to talk as two pastors here next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're asking where we get our medical wisdom and... We're talking with Clarissa Mall, author and podcaster about finding hope in seasons of grief. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, 
everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson, and I am joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm. We have something a little bit sticky to talk about here, and that is how pastors or how ministers, how public platform Christians handle medical advice. And Mm -hmm. Christianity Today recently shared a story about Jim Baker, who had to pay 156000 over a claim that he had the cure to COVID-19, something called Silver Solution. Um, uh, you know, before we go there, we actually have a little clip I want to play from you. This is actually an old clip of um, a news story related to Jim Baker. Maybe early on in the pandemic, already people were calling him out for being fraudulent and um, talking about the fact that lots of people were trying to sell things fraudulently. So here's that. The Food and Drug Administration and Federal Trade Commission warning vendors for selling fraudulent COVID-19 products that pose significant risks to patient health and violate federal law. This influenza. Among those warned, televangelist Jim Baker, who sold this silver solution on his show. You're saying that silver solution would be effective. Well, let's say it hasn't been tested on this strain of the coronavirus, but it's been tested on other strains of the coronavirus and has been uh, able to eliminate it within 12 hours. And he's not alone. Others are claiming so-called silver solution or colloidal silver can cure coronavirus. It looks just like water, but for years the FDA has been warning not only can this not cure anything, but it can actually damage your health. Baker removed the video after the FDA warning. So basically, uh, Brian, can you explain who Jim Baker is for people who don't know? I can. Jim Baker, uh, you might remember in the mid 80s, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, uh, they started a thing called PTL, praise the Lord, PTL. So it had a water park and like an amusement park. I, I went to this park many times, a couple oh, times. I, I mean, one, I had no idea there was a water park until you told me. And two, the fact that you were there is unbelievable to me. On, I think on two occasions in my life, I'll have to ask my parents. I think I went two separate occasions. Uh, little known fact here, though, the water park was awesome. Uh, but it was, I believe, in South Carolina, and it was like a Christian resort is basically what it was. But what came out was Tim, and Tim, Tim uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, easy for me to say. Right. <laughs> uh, they sold a lot of people on a lot of promises and, and quite frankly, uh, got a lot of money out of people. They right. personally profited, and a lot of people who didn't have money to be giving them gave them a lot of money. And uh, and so my my point in that being the background. There's a movie coming out about. I was about this to year. say there's a movie coming out called I think it's called Tammy's Eyes or something like that something coming out like soon. That. Yeah. And so Tammy Faye Baker died. Uh, I don't know five, seven, ten years ago of cancer. Uh, but Jim Baker is still going at it. Mm-hmm. And and so that's the background that kind of makes you go, okay, this guy's already a little seedy. And now this year, uh, he like you said, he started peddling a. Um, uh, a cure for COVID right. uh, called the silver solution. Yeah. yeah. Essentially and, and, snake oil. <laughs> yeah. And so this was on his streaming TV program, the Jim Baker show. And so when you understand his background of quite frankly, fleecing a lot of people out of yep. a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, and if you, if you're like, Oh, that's harsh, go Google him and yes. look at what happened in the mid eighties. Uh, now he's being sued and he is has settled a lawsuit and he has to pay one hundred and fifty six thousand dollars or at least his church does uh, for falsely claiming this health supplement could cure covid-19. And so 
it raises all sorts of issues, Aubrey. But one of them that I think you and I, both as pastors, I think feel very uh, strongly about is where are the things that we should be stepping into? Right. Where are the things that we do not step into? Right. Because a lot of pastors have made lots of proclamations over the mm-hmm. last year, be it political, be it uh, health, be it medical, mm-hmm. vaccinations, whatever else it might be. Uh, and I would say there's a lot of pastors this year who have overstepped their yes. authority and their bounds. Yes. And and I think the question becomes, what is the pastoral role? What falls under that umbrella and really what does not? You know, I, I feel like, Brian, you know, I'm not trying to be totally sarcastic here, but I am a little bit like I went to school for evangelism and leadership. Mm. I did not go to medical school. That's right. And so for me to stand at a pulpit and make proclamations about medicine that I know nothing about or proclamations about science that I know nothing about, I am not trained in. That's not the role of the pastor. Now, had I gone to school for medicine, had I done a lot of scientific research on the COVID vaccine, that's maybe a different story. Certainly, I think pastors can share. Here's what I think. If you're asking for my perspective or my opinion, I'm going to tell you what I think. But to make authoritative stances that this certain thing cures coronavirus when we're watching numbers of people die from coronavirus is absurd it's wrong. It is really a uh, it's corruption of power, frankly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're a pastor, Brian. Like, what do you do? You offer medical advice. How do you kind of handle that? <laughs> no, I hardly understand the medical world myself. And so, <laughs> uh, no, I don't think it's and people may disagree with us. And that's what we love about this show. Yeah. I don't think it's the pastor's place to be giving vaccination, um, authoritative vaccination uh, advice in leading to their church. I think it can very much be the pastor's role to tell people, hey, I got vaccinated. Here's why. I mm-hmm. think you should, too. Mm-hmm. I didn't get vaccinated. Here's why. I, I Maybe mm-hmm. you should think about this. But always pointing people, pointing people to others who are more authoritative. We have this wonderful thing called the Internet right. where people <laughs> can read uh, like Christians like Francis Collins. Yeah, great uh, example. Francis Collins, it, to put it uh, really simply, is... Anthony Fauci's boss yes. at the NIH. And, and Francis Collins has written some of the most authoritative Christian books about medicine and science. He started or led BioLogos. Like the guy's brilliant and he's a believer. And he's a faithful Christian. That's right. So rather than asking me or Aubrey or even your pastor, should I get the vaccine? Google Francis Collins vaccinations. And that's what someone who does have authority there are things that we as pastors have authority to speak on. Like you said, we went to school to learn the Bible, to learn leaders or whatever else it might mm-hmm. be. But sometimes pastors, I will just be blunt about this, can get power hungry. And yes. go, I need to be the authority on everything within my church, right. that, whether it be vaccines or masks or uh, Christ, uh, you know, critical race theory mm-hmm. or or. Democrats and Republicans, right. whatever else it might be. And I think that's overstepping our bounds. I think our role is to point our people in the right direction and then to go a step further with Jim Baker. This was clearly to raise money. Exactly. Raise money. That's a whole different level of like swarmy and like kind of eh, yes. like that's that's yes. just bad. Yes. But I do think when it comes to authority and speaking authoritatively, we do have to handle that really, really carefully. I, I know during the pandemic, lots of people came to Kevin asking him, should I get the vaccine? And he would say, hey, listen, 
listen, I am not your doctor. I think you should ask your doctor if you should get the vaccine and then you should do what your doctor says. I can talk to you theologically about some of the um, questions surrounding the vaccine. Like, what what does your heart say about it? Are you afraid of death? Are you ready for uh, whatever God brings your way? Are you know? So I, I do think that's a role pastors can play, like you said, point people to the those who have earned the right to speak authoritatively about health and um, then offer what you can theologically, maybe get to the question underneath the question of the vaccine. Like, why are people afraid or not afraid? What's that about? And that's what pastors, that's the care pastors can offer. Agreed. Agreed. Because I don't like that's where I'll end this. I don't know. I've been talking to medical professionals as my wife and I have wrestled with the vaccine question in the mm-hmm. past months or what do we do about masks or opening up the church. I get really hesitant when I see pastors who kind of give this air, whether I know them or it's on Twitter or whatever else, of I'm authoritative on everything. That, right. that starts to become cult-like, right? Like that's yeah. what a cult is. Listen to me for everything. Yeah, that's right. And, and give and, me money. Add money to it. Well, yeah. that's where it gets really dangerous. But yeah, I think this is a super important conversation because now you've got things like the Delta variant and other things. Yeah. COVID's not going away. Right. And we're going to have to continue to wrestle with these questions. And we one way that we wrestle with them wisely is by going to the right people and not the wrong people. Yeah, that's good. Good word, Brian. Well, stick around. We are joined by Clarissa Mall. She's an author. She's the co-host of Christianity Today Surprised by Grief podcast. She's the host of the Weekly Hope Writers podcast, and she has experienced some very serious grief in her life. She's going to talk to us about finding hope in the middle of those seasons. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by Clarissa Mall. Clarissa is an author, also the co-host of Christianity Today's Surprised by Grief podcast, along with uh, Daniel Harrell. Uh, we're also going to talk a bit to Clarissa about an article she wrote at the Gospel Coalition entitled Life is Reopening. Why am I so sad? So, so much we want to talk to Clarissa about. But let me just say hello, Clarissa. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Hey, before we dive into all of that, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better? Sure. So I am an author and podcaster. I'm the wife and widow of former CT editor Rob Mall. Um, my husband, Rob, fell to his death in a hiking accident in mm. 2019 on our family vacation. Uh, so while I had a career in nonprofit marketing and communications telling the stories of nonprofits, uh, since his death, I've pivoted to offering companionship grief support as oh. opposed to clinical. There's There's a lot of clinical grief support out there, but what we find when we're grieving is we just often need someone to walk alongside of us and uh, tell us that we're not crazy, we're not alone, um, that this is hard, but somehow God is good. And uh, so it's been a privilege to walk with folks over the last two years as I have written and spoken. Um, It's a road I never hoped to travel, but I, I have to say I've been surprised by the gifts that God has given along the way. Mm. Mm. Clarissa, that was actually going to be one of my questions. So you segued into that. Um, In your season of grief and as you're walking with other people in their grief, what do you feel like are some of the very surprising ways that God has shown up? 
Well, I think um, one of the things that has surprised me most has been in the reality of how hard death actually is. You know, as Christians, we like to talk a lot about heaven, about our eternal hope. But, uh, you know, if you are grieving, you meet Jesus at the cross. You meet the wounded mm. Savior. You meet mm. the one who uh, has faced this absolutely hideous thing that has befallen you. And, uh, and he's done it for you. And I think there's just such um, a surprising grace that is found in that space where uh, you meet the Savior who is wounded, not the triumphant King necessarily, although that is our hope, but uh, the real companion in sorrow is Jesus himself. And I have to say that's one place that I was surprised. I thought that in grief, uh, I would just turn my eyes to the horizon and and look to heaven as the thing mm-hmm. that kind of pulled me forward. But really, I've found that it's okay to grieve as long as you need to, as hard as it is, because you know that in the dirt, when you're sitting on that bathroom floor, uh, that mm-hmm. Jesus is with you. That's right. That's beautiful. It's a gift. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And Clarissa, so I wonder... Uh, especially right after your husband passed away, but I'm sure even in in all of this time since then, how hard was it to believe at times that God is good? And and how did how would you go about reminding yourself of that or holding on to that truth, even when it was hard to believe? Well, I think there are two ways that I've I've tried to do that. Uh, First, uh, I like to use the phrase rehearsing these things to our hearts, rehearse the truth Mm. to your heart, because I think a lot of times we feel like we can't say that God is good unless we feel it. And I think that there's a a real truth to repeating the words, even when it's hard to believe, Uh, saying back to your soul, God is good. I will trust him. God is good. Mm. I will trust him. Even when it's hard to believe, because uh, we know that our faith is not dependent on our feelings. And so in the darkness, uh, the darkness does not mean that God is not good. It just means that life is really hard. And, um, And I think second, surrounding myself with a community of believers who sang that song when I couldn't sing it myself has been such a gift to stand in worship and hear uh, folks sing and pray and read about God's goodness when I felt like the bottom had dropped out of my own life. Mm. Uh, That trajectory pulls you forward. And I think that's where the body of Christ is is such a particular gift to people who are suffering uh, because they speak the words that maybe we don't even believe anymore, but we yeah. desperately need to hear. Oh, so good, Clarissa. You know, I, I'm just sitting here thinking of the listener that maybe is in a really, really heavy season or of, of grief, or perhaps walking with someone who is, and they're hearing you and they want to know that God is there, but it sort of feels like they're praying to the ceiling fan at this point. What words of encouragement would you offer them? I would say keep talking, mm. talking uh, there. It is when we experience what we feel like is radio silence that we can speak into that silence. And that's where I think the practice of lament is so valuable uh, to pour out all of who we are, even if it feels like it's to the ceiling. Uh, that's right. Say your angry words, say your frustrated words, say your despairing words, because the truth is that even when we feel like they're just bouncing off the walls and coming back to us at an echo, uh, we are heard by God. His He says uh, in the Psalms that he collects our tears in a bottle, and uh, we know that he is listening even when we don't feel like he is. 
Yeah. Chris, I always found it so powerful. A lot of us know your husband's story. We, you know, we read about it or whatever else. And I always found it so um, powerful that he wrote a book called The Art of Dying. Uh, and, and so I would love for you to be able to talk about that book because I'd love for people to go get it. Like, go, go to Amazon and search it out. Could you tell us about your husband's first book, The Art of Dying? Sure. It seems like, uh, I guess in the world, we would say a serendipity or an ironic <laughs> coincidence that 10 years before his death, he would write a book about dying. Uh, but Rob had covered the Terry Schiavo case with Christianity Today, and mm. he saw uh, Christians wrestling with end-of-life issues, uh, compassionate death, and he mm. felt like there was a real vacuum in um, in church conversation beyond ethics, what it meant to be a Christian, uh, to walk with a Christian who was dying. And so he became a hospice volunteer. He began working at a funeral home in the, on the night shift uh, wow. in, in downtown Wheaton. And he, um, and he wanted to understand what it meant for us to live with hope in the face of death. And so he wrote this book. It was a large part of the early part of our marriage. We talked a lot about death and dying as 30 wow. things, uh, you know, with little kids <laughs> running around. Uh, and, and yet, you know, as, as I come to this place now, 11 years later, I think, boy, I'm so glad that we had those conversations. I'm so glad that his book exists to begin a conversation that for most folks is really taboo because yeah. it's been helpful for me in my own grief journey uh, to be prepared for death, perhaps not prepared for grief, but prepared for what was to come uh, because mm. death will come to us all. Yeah. Mm. Again, the name of Clarissa's late husband's book is The Art of Dying. And Clarissa, you have a book coming out in the spring. Are you able to talk about it yet? Yes. <laughs> so I've got a book uh, still waiting to be titled coming out in the spring with Tyndale. Uh, practical grief support. You know, there's a lot of practical grief support out there in the world, but much of it is anti-Christian. It, it uh, doesn't like a transformational sense of suffering. It uh, doesn't want to talk about meaning beyond this life. And mm. I saw there was a real hole there uh, for Christians to receive practical advice and help from someone who's walking the path with them, but also infused with uh, a gospel hope that is very much um, empty and, and missing from traditional grief support. That's great. Again, we're joined by Clarissa Mall. She is co-host of Christianity Today's Surprise by Grief podcast. Uh, she is also an author. You can find more at clarissamall.com. That's M-O-L-L, clarissamall.com, and connect with her also on Instagram or in other social media places. We're thrilled to have you stay with us. You recently wrote an article this week at the Gospel Coalition called Life is Reopening, Why Am I Still So Sad? As we're, as we're coming out of this pandemic, life is getting more, quote unquote, normal. Uh, are you finding that a lot of people are still feeling really sad? And why do you think that is? Because you'd think as life gets more normal, people would be like all excited and happy. So what are what is it that you're seeing out there? That's so true. You know, I think there are two reasons for that. First of all, is that we've got a, 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 some fatigue here, <laughs> some grief yeah. fatigue. Uh, we've been doing this hard thing for a year and a half, and I think folks are just plain tired. And it's hard to pivot from tired to celebratory in a matter of weeks. Yeah. Uh, we need the time to reverse patterns of uh, physical touch and proximity and, and even feeling a sense of safety with one another that can make us feel uneasy. And that's hard to just turn quickly 
and and reopen. But I think there's also another element. You know, uh, there are approximately 5.4 million folks who are grieving just in the U.S. over uh, the death of loved ones from COVID. And I receive emails and and direct messages um, frequently from folks who have lost loved ones. And so the celebration that we feel perhaps in being able to take off a mask or re-enter church, uh, it's not necessarily shared by everyone in the pews. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, I think my article is, is a call to sensitivity, not only to a sensitivity for ourselves as we experience grief in reentry, but also to the, the grief that is among us and around us, sometimes often very quiet now because of a pandemic that unfortunately has become politicized in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, Clarissa, I, you know, going back to what we were talking about before with kids and even now kids processing the world opening up again, you, when you lost your husband, you said your kids were fairly little. How old were they? That's right. My daughter had just turned seven. Um, okay. My son was 11. I had a 13-year-old and, or I'm sorry, no, it was 7, 10, 12, and 14. So okay. young, yeah. So that's, that's fairly young to process a daddy's death and a sudden death. And then... Um, just to process grief in general. And I guess I'm wondering for parents out there who don't know how to walk their kids through maybe some um, feelings of grief, even around the pandemic. Do you have wisdom for those parents? Well, kids' grief is very different from adults' grief. A lot of times we think that uh, our children are experiencing the same things the way that we are experiencing them. Um, but children grieve in very different ways. Many times kids have what I like to call popcorn grief, where it pops up and then it goes mm. away. We think, oh, it's all gone. And oh, there it, there it arises again. And so I think as our kids re-enter after the pandemic, that's an important thing to watch for, to realize that uh, a grief expression is not not a one and done, that they may need to go over some of these things from time to time for the next couple of years, even as they readjust and grow. Uh, Many kids have experienced a full developmental shift in the year and a half since the pandemic began. You know, a kid who was young has maybe gone through puberty now, and that's a big shift. And uh, we need to be able to acknowledge those changes and give our kids the time and space to grieve in the ways that they need to, knowing that uh, children are resilient and that they are built to um, to grow and progress and uh, and that their inward design is for fortitude through difficult things. Yeah. And, and Clarissa, in this article, as you as you try to give people some practical wisdom on what to do as we come out of the pandemic and, you know, they're still feeling sad. I, I love in your list, you talk about root yourself in memories of God's goodness, kind of this looking back and this memory of, of what we have in scripture of who God is and what he has done in the past. Can you unpack that for people, the importance of remembering the memories of God's goodness? Well, that's right. You know, when you're grieving, it feels like the world is running a mile a minute and Mm -hmm. everyone is rushing forward and you just can't keep up that pace. And so I, I like to remind folks, if you're grieving, 
don't bother. Don't bother. Slow down. And if you can't look forward, simply look to the past. I love the repetition in the Old Testament of the Lord your God has redeemed you. It's words that we hear uh, over that's recited during the Passover feast. And we hear them throughout the Old Testament because the children of Israel and we need reminders that God has been good. And so Mm. even if you don't feel it now, don't try to pin a happy face or smile when you don't feel like it. Instead, turn backward. Look to the places in your life where God has been faithful as a, as a sign and commitment that what he's done in the past, he will do again, even as mm. you wait for that to happen. Oh, I love that. Such a practical word. Um, Clarissa, you know, we were talking about personal tragedy. I want to step back a little bit and talk about uh, n- national tragedies and disasters. We've all been watching the news in Miami right now of the condo collapse. And I wonder what you would say to offer any sense of encouragement or hope for families that are still searching for loved ones there. You know, it's, I, I think uh, it brings me back to those moments where I was waiting to hear back mm. from my husband. Uh, I waited for hours to hear that he was okay. I texted and called. And it wasn't until the chaplains arrived at my campsite where I knew that the news wouldn't be good. Mm. But uh, I know even just a microcosm of that waiting that these families are enduring. And um and you know there are there are so few words that offer solace in those really dark hard moments uh but god is there god is in the darkness with you and um and even when you do not feel his presence the reality is that he is there and he promises to be with us in the valley of the shadow and in your valley of the shadow he is with you and um you know if those are words that you can rehearse to your heart you know he's with me in the valley of the shadow he's with me in the valley of the shadow. Uh, they can be words of comfort that allow you to stand on God's promises, even in the very hard waiting and the inevitability sometimes of um, of that, that reality that you've been dreading. Yeah. And Clarissa, we're so grateful for the time you spent with us. Before we let you go, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the podcast that you co-host? Again, we said it's Christianity Today's new podcast called Surprised by Grief. What can, what can you tell us about that podcast? Well, I'm super excited about Surprised by Grief. It seems weird to be surprised or excited <laughs> to podcast about grief, but you know, I feel like uh, we're we're ready to help the church become fluent in words of consolation. We are ready mm. after a pandemic, after experiencing personal grief, to get better at letting grief come to church, letting all of our hurt be seen and heard in the church, and uh, receive the comfort of the Holy Spirit and eternal hope. So, I think Surprised by Grief. Grief is an opportunity to folks to just kind of get a peek into Daniel and my life as a widow and widower and uh, to see how God is working, where love is leading us, and uh, hopefully to have an opportunity to, in a really non-confrontational way, practice getting used to having grief and death in the room. Mm, wow. That's powerful. Again, it's called Surprised by Grief. You can get that wherever it is you get your podcast. Also, you can follow Clarissa uh, at clarissamall.com. Again, that's clarissamall.com. She writes at Gospel Coalition and other places. Clarissa, it is so good to meet you. Thank you for taking time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday afternoon. Hopefully you're driving home, going to have some good dinner, going to enjoy some time with your family or your friends. My name is Aubrey Sampson, joined here by my co-host, Brian Fromm. And, uh, you know, it's June 29th. And believe it or not, June 29th is a very significant day in history. So we're going to talk about some things. Yeah, we're going to talk about some things on this day in history. But before we do that, I Ryan. need the payoff. I need yeah. the payoff. Yeah. You yeah. promised You promised way at the beginning of the show, we promised our listeners that you have, quote, a, I don't forget how you called it, a, a fascinating Michael Jordan I story. Do. It's a great told. Michael Jordan story. I, I can't want believe I haven't to hear the story. Let's okay. do it. I'm curious if you're going to think I'm cooler than you think I am now, Brian. And that might not be possible, but I feel like I'm going like, to sure. go up in your standing <laughs> in life. So my, I, my 21st birthday, my parents took me to New York City for my birthday. Okay. And we went to see a bunch of plays. I, I, I've, I'm very into theater. You and I have talked about musical theater before on one of our top five lists. Very into musicals and very into just plays in general. So my parents took me to a series of plays. One of those plays was a show called Art, A-R-T. Okay. And we go and we, we have great seats at Art. And there are two seats next to me that are empty uh, I guess, you know, kind of the th- we're like the third row from the front. Uh, everyone has a seat except for I have two people next to me that aren't there. Okay. okay. The lights dim in the theater. All of a sudden, two people get shuffled in by security guards. They sit down in those two seats next to me. The lights go on. The show starts. I look over and I am sitting next to Michael Jordan. No way. Who is um, the other person? Do you know? I guess his wife at the time, who I don't think is his wife now, but she's not. Twenty uh, first birthday. I'm sitting next to Michael Jordan. I'm this, you know, Wheaton College kid from Chicago. I wow. know how amazing Michael Jordan. All I can remember is how massive his hands were. My mom and dad were across the aisle, so they could see it happening, and they're like, "All right." And I'm like, I know, I know, be cool, be cool. So I don't say anything to Michael Jordan. But what I remember is when I would laugh at a joke, he would laugh at a joke. And I kept thinking to myself, Michael Jordan and I have the same sense of humor. (laughs) At end of the play, the actors bow, lights dim. Michael Jordan and his wife at the time get uh, shuffled out. Lights go on. The rest of us are allowed to leave. And that was the play on my 21st birthday. That's my Michael Jordan story. So a couple stories. What year was that? I guess it might have been 1999 or 1998. I'm trying to remember because I graduated college in 2000 and this was my 21st birthday. So it must have been 99. Yeah. what, What year were you born? I mean, I feel like I don't want to say that on the air, but it was 1978. Oh, so, ni- so 1999. <laughs> 1999 <laughs> yes. is my 21st birthday. You were yes. overthinking that. All yeah. right. So he had just retired from the Bulls. That is fascinating. Cool, Did you right? regret at all not getting an autograph? You, yes. There was no pictures then. Yes, there was no I, selfies. Right. You didn't have cell phones then. And I, I did have my playbill and I wrote on my playbill the date and I saw Michael. I sat next to Michael Jordan. So I would have that memory. I still have the playbill saved. But I, I do sort of regret not handing it over and asking him to sign it. But at the end of the day, like it was clear that they had all worked very hard to make this an experience where he didn't get flooded by people. And so I, I think my better judgment kind of said, I shouldn't bother Michael Jordan in this moment, but I wanted to be like, I'm from Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you. Oh, that's a good story. Yeah. That, that would be a little bit of regret. Like, uh, yeah. 
like, oh, I could, I had my chance right there, but yeah. you don't want to be that, that person, right? Right, exactly. Okay, you, so, oh, go ahead. I just got to say, I'll close it with, I think you would have been okay to ask for an autograph because you were next to him. I don't think people getting up and going, I don't that think would that have been would have awkward. Been okay. Yeah, I, I, looking back, that was probably my only opportunity and I did miss it. But anyway, that was that day in history, March 20th, 1999. Now we're looking at today, June 29th in history. And here's some things that happened. Brian, are you ready for this? I am very ready. Willy Wonka, the movie, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, turns 50 years old. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my chocolate factory. I hope you enjoy it. I think you will. Yeah, that's crazy. So did you do you think of that movie as Willy Wonka uh, or Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Or it was also called something else, right? So I think of it as Charlie and the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Factory. Yeah. Except interestingly, uh, my kids wanted to watch it. They looked it up. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is the newer version with Johnny Depp. This one is actually called Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. The you know the old one. Fascinating. Yeah, from when we were. I mean, I guess it was probably even older than when we were kids. But here's the funny thing. So 50 years later, the actors that were young kids are reflecting back on their experiences of filming the movie. And you know that very famous scene when they're like licking the wallpaper that's supposed to taste like pineapple or whatever, banana. The actors basically say, yeah, we were just licking wallpaper and it was gross. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I thought funny. that was good. All right. And then anything- there was, hold on, there was that uh, mid, uh, mid-90s band from when we were uh, like in junior high and high school, right? There was that band called Veruca Salt, which was named <gasps> oh, after the girl in the play. I in the play. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Well done, Brian. Thank you very much. Because I remember being like, where'd that name come from? Oh, it's Willy Wonka. So yes, Willy Veruca Wonka. Salt. Yep. Okay. You want to know some other things that happened I this do. day in history? Okay. The U.S. space shuttle docked with the Russian space station. Okay. What year is that? Do you know? Okay. This year, I'm, I'm finding this out right now. This was in 1995. The American Space Shuttle Atlantis docks with the Russian space station Mir to form yeah. the largest man-made satellite ever to orbit the Earth. Huh. Fascinating, That's right? Fascinating. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I feel like we could use, especially since you told us earlier in the show, our alien captors and friends are going to be coming within <laughs> the next couple of weeks. They're coming before Labor Day. Yep. So uh, I don't feel like we're we're focused on space enough, especially if they're coming. Like, I feel like we need more of this uh, this kind of working together because, hey, they're coming. They're coming, as you told yeah, we got to be prepared for them so that they don't dominate and destroy us. OK, here's another one. This is sports. So you might like this, Brian. I will. On this day in 1959, a little known soccer player named Pele led Brazil to win the World Cup title. Yes. I, and that's what's amazing. Like. You know, people don't look back to like an athlete in 1959 and be like, that's the greatest person ever in this sport. You know, maybe in boxing, they talk of Muhammad Ali or this or that. But people still and people like Messi and Ronaldo are probably better than what Pele was. But he's still like the gold standard. People are always like, oh, Pele, like he's he's (laughs) the soccer player. Like if you ask me to name any professional soccer player, I'm going Pele every single time. Like Pele. Yeah, Pele. Pele, of course. And I I mean, we had like. Go ahead. Yeah, I do feel like the goal in life is to be known by one name, right? Like certainly that's the goal. Like think yeah. in the sports world, there's Pele, there's uh there's Ali, there's Jordan, there's yep. LeBron, there's Kobe. Like to be named by one name, you know you've made it. You've, you've made, made it. it. Yeah, that that's definitely the goal. Okay, here's one more. Are you ready for this one? This I is a little am. bit of a tragedy. 
1613, in jolly old England, the Globe Theater burned down, which was the very famous theater where Shakespeare mounted many of his shows. Oh. I've actually been to the Globe Theater in England. Have you been to the Globe Theater? I have not. That then not I'm better than you. Yep. Sure. Um, so anyway, that's this day in history. Any uh, surprising things there, Brian? No, no, not not at all. Except that you went to the Globe Theater. It's burned down a long time ago. So apparently that's the new Globe Theater. Yes, but, they have uh, rebuilt it. Yeah. Uh, Willy Wonka, that's all good. I'm just, you know, I can't, I, I'm losing my thought, my train of thought right here because I just keep looking up and I, I would like to tell our alien captors if they come, <laughs> you're welcome on the show in the next couple of weeks. We'll have you on. We'll have you on. We'll interview that's you. Right. That's yeah, right. The, that would theology actually be, and alien, so. that would be good for our ratings. Well, uh, we hope <laughs> yes, you stick around tomorrow. We don't know if the Aliens will be here or not, but we will have a fantastic show for you. We hope you have a fabulous rest of your evening. Don't get too wet out there. Stay dry. Enjoy your family or your friends inside tonight. I feel like that's a good move for everybody. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.